0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Meets podcast where we speak to all sorts of people who work within sound and music. On the show this time we have Lincoln Barrett, aka High Contrast, who is one of the world's biggest drum and bass producers and artists. Uh, His first album, True Colours, came out in 2002 and his most recent album, his sixth, came out in 2020 called Notes from the Underground. Uh, He's released a prolific amount of records and done some incredibly high-profile remixes and live sets over the years. He's also touring with a live show as well, and uh, you definitely got to check out his music. Uh, You can donate to the podcast if you want to support it. You can donate via PayPal or via Ko-fi. This is all done by me in my bedroom, by myself. All the editing, the research, the promo, the write-up... Uh, It's all done by me, so any support is greatly appreciated. Okay, let's get on with the show. Anyway, the first thing that I asked High Contrast was
1: about his musical beginnings. I mean, anyone who's, like, known me all my life, they they were, like, so uh, surprised that I became a, you know... I guess, musician, uh, you know, DJ, producer, uh, whatever you want to call it, because, uh, I mean, really, I was just obsessed with films from such a young age, you know, basically from about five, and then started making my own films when I was about 10 or 11. And, you know, everyone who knew me was like, oh, he's going to be a film director, you know. And and then I, I just... Did this one eighty move where I, I just seemed to kind of lose all interest in in uh, the visual and just completely became obsessed with audio uh, around when I was kind of seventeen? So that then by the time I was actually studying film in university in my late teens it already felt like kind of a, a losing battle you know that that film was fighting uh for my attention and uh you know i went from watching hundreds of films a year to watching maybe one a year yeah i mean i mean it was just and you know may, maybe this is to do with um you know my my potentially kind of uh, neurodivergent uh um thing going on in in my head but you know the way i've I become kind of obsessed with something and and that that is it like i'm i'm just so focused on that and then i'll move to something else and uh, it, that is the new focus and and it's just that you know and and that that really happened with this kind of switch from film to to music and um yeah, the, the, to the point then where, you know, I, I didn't even bother going to my graduation at university and I'd managed to sign a record deal just before um, graduating. So I, I just Crazy. went straight into into a music career. You know, I, I was just kind of immediately touring and releasing the first album um, straight out of the gate, you know, when I was like... I guess I finished it when I was like 21. And, then, you know, then it then it took a number of years where... I eventually did kind of find my love for film again and I started making music videos and and things like that. And, and, you know, ever since that I've been trying to kind of get back in, in the film game, but it's, uh, music just keeps pulling me back in, you know, it's, it's a very kind of, uh, seductive thing, you know, because to make a film you kind of need an army of people, you know, and it takes, you know, you're looking really two years at least to to, to, to to see a project through. Whereas you can get a beat going in five minutes, you know, and and, and it's yeah. just it's given me that kind of creative fix, you know, and, and, and I find yeah, music very seductive like that. But um you know, I, I had piano lessons as a kid, um but I didn't really take to it too much because i think the the pieces i I was being taught were mainly mainly classical and uh although i love classical music now as as a kid um i just kind of struggled with it and um so i stopped the piano lessons and then i started having keyboard lessons you know um and the, the main differentiation was that you know with piano you're using your left and right hand you know going full pelt but like with the keyboard lessons you were just playing chords with your left hand and the melody with the right hand and that kind of clicked with me more i i really liked chords and just kind of straight like kind of chord riffs you know and and uh i think that kind of paid off in later years you know where uh so much of dance music is built around quite simple chord progressions um but i I could kind of connect with that and f- and find you know something i found interesting in that having the kind of pad sounds or whatever in, in jungle records but um yeah as, as a kid i i really was just about films and and film music not really listening to much music um outside of that kind of concept you know but like the music that i heard growing up was all 50s rock and roll because that was the world my dad was in you know he he just loved 50s rock and roll obsessively he basically hated everything from the Beatles onwards you know <laughs> and um, so I, I think part of the reason I initially you know for the first 16 or so years of my life I had very little interest in music it was because my parents were so into music that you know I think you kind of rebel against a bit what your your, your parents are into so because my dad was already this you know music guy i think subconsciously i i kind of wanted to be different it maybe. and um i mean he had a love of film as well you know and we we bonded over that more than than the music but to me like music was kind of the thing my parents were into you know so i i i kind of yeah i did i didn't really find a way in to music and until i was well into my teenage years you know and um the the one of the things that I did like that my dad played me though was um, there was a guy in the fifties called Dicky Goodman, and he released a series of like novelty kind of comedy records where um, he was doing these kind of sketches. Um, like one was like about an alien invasion, another would be in like a hospital or or something. Yeah, and uh, but basically he was like. It was almost like a little kind of radio play, but he would say um You know, we we now go to hear from the president, and and then he would like cut in a line from a from a rock and roll record, you know, and it'd be like a what Babalooba, what Bam Boom, or something, you know, as if the president had said that. Like it was just this kind of uh, absurd comedy sketches. But I loved that what he was doing, and it was really sampling before anyone had any idea of sampling, you know, and he was like cutting in like lines from Elvis as, as gag lines to like questions he was setting up, you know? And of course, I mean, this was like before there were any laws about sampling. So this was like the, really the first time where the whole copyright issue of, of sampling was, was coming into play because he was having these hit records in America that were, um, you know, pieced together from, these other massive hit records you know and and they they just kind of put it out not thinking that there was any real like legal problem but i think it they they did kind of like run into legal problems i'm not sure how it was resolved but um i i feel like that's an that's a a thing that like uh, people don't really talk about in the history of sampling because it usually begins with hip-hop in the kind of uh, late 70s early 80s you know and and uh yeah, I I I always found it kind of interesting that I had this kind of uh, window into sampling, and and as a kid I had a tape recorder, and I was trying to like make my own versions of these records where I was like saying stuff, and then I would cut to a line I was recording in from from a record. So I, I think that was like maybe my first attempt at kind of like making I don't know if it's like making music, but like uh I, I, I still consider myself more as an editor of sounds than a musician. So I guess that that kind of fits in with that, you know. And the the other thing um that, that I recall from my childhood was, you know, when I started having these keyboard lessons and I had one of those uh, you know, like Casio type keyboards that had um the preset rhythm tracks on there you know so there was like a ballad drum beat and then there was like a rock drum beat and there was there was a heavy metal drum beat you know I can't remember how I was aware of it but I knew that the Sex Pistols did that cover version of uh, Frank Sinatra my way and um, that as a kid that just the bizarreness of like this punk band covering uh frank sinatra it, ju- it just really clicked with me and i remember like um in my keyboard lessons you know that the, the songs i was like learning were like all these kind of like club standards you know you know uh they'd be like you know my way was one of them and and, and you know just like very kind of uh oldies type songs that my teacher um was was, uh getting me to learn yeah which i was totally cool with because i think that you know i I love a lot of you know pop music but um you know, when we had to do my way in in my lessons, I remember I was like playing it with the heavy metal drum beat on the on the Casio, you know, and <laughs> and um, trying to do this like version of the Sex Pistols. And this is when I was like seven years old, I think, you know, and just that idea of like taking one song and and flipping it into this other context that really clicked with me. And and you know, I can see that parallel, um, you know, in in when I've done drum and bass or jungle versions of songs you, you know i guess one of the ones i did most recently was the beach boys god only knows which uh you know is often thought of as like one of the greatest songs of all time and and it's surely a fool's errand to try and do a remix of but you know i i also have this kind of very uh nothing is sacred approach you know and uh i feel like that has you know put me in good stead over the years because uh, i think a lot of times people kind of censor themselves and like well i couldn't do that or, or or you shouldn't you know do that artistically you know but I've, I've always just been like well the if the fact that people find that you know something you shouldn't do that appeals to me you know like mm. when i did a, a collab with uh, tiesto you know like that really kind of went against the grain of like underground drum and bass and and just i i was just so aware that that would you know it appealed to me that doing a track with this guy who was the biggest dj in the world at that time you know was was controversial and, and kind of a dangerous thing to do for your <laughs> career in a way, you know, but but I just couldn't help myself because, because I mean, first of all, you know, I, I, I liked some of the recent tracks he'd made and I thought, well, there, there is something there that, that could work. I like the strings. So I was like, if he brings some of those strings to it, then, you know, artistically I'm up for it. But then just the idea of it, the way it upset people, um that just appealed to my kind of uh um perverse uh sense of uh i don't know just um
0: yeah there's something really satisfying i think when someone tells you that you can't do something there's something really satisfying in doing that thing that they tell you that you can't do
1: yeah yeah and and um you know if you if you're on the underground side of things it's already you know making drone and bass it's like well you know well where do you go from there like you know you, you you can't you're already kind of like in the most underground type dance genre uh what more can you prove in that regard you know and, and it's just like well actually it's more interesting to me to go and work with the biggest dj in the world because the that is the controversial weird thing to do you know um <laughs> yeah uh, yeah anyway uh yeah that 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 whole thing of kind of like taking something from one context and putting it into another and and you know that dj zinc remix of ready or not like when when i first heard that in the i don't know 96 around then um that was like a real eureka moment where it was like that kind of uh the sex pistols doing my way you know it, it was like here in this nutty jungle remix that was only available on this you know illegal white label vinyl you know that the fujis were like trying to get banned you know from you know from any record shop selling it you know having that jungle remix of a you know pretty smooth almost r&b-ish type hip-hop track that just really appealed to me you know the the the, the, the clashing of those worlds and and uh you know that, that that all fits into my kind of thing about contrast you know of, of just like taking things from one world and mixing it with another and, and that's one of the reasons I, I generally don't remix drum and bass tracks I only kind of remix tracks from other genres into drum and bass you know because part of the big appeal it, to me is to take something from another genre and mix it with this one that is kind of my home
0: definitely definitely and it's sort of like you have you seem to have like a no boundaries outlook then to to making music
1: yeah yeah i mean like i i just kind of feel like if if it is making me buzz in the studio you know if if, if, I, if i'm just kind of getting the vibes um then uh that, that that's all that matters you know and and um if it winds some people up, then uh, that's even better. But. Yeah,
0: I really liked what you said as well. In an interview, you were talking about... Um, someone asked you about your guilty pleasures of pop. Mm. And and you said, I don't think there are like guilty pleasures. I thought that was a really great answer to, to just open up and say that...
1: Y- yeah, yeah. I, I kind of think... Um, yeah, it's, it's a weird one that, that we're like... Well, if you enjoy it, then there is nothing to feel guilty about, you know? Uh, and It's a weird concept, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I guess it's like a snobbishness that can exist, you know? And and I, and I think there has been a bit of that, especially like in drum and bass over the years. That You know, I always remember um, one of the first documentaries I ever saw on TV about um, drum and bass. There was a a great documentary where they followed um, LTJ Bookham, around on tour and he was like doing raves in the uk and then there was a bit when they're in japan and uh, um you know that was one of the first times i was really kind of like seeing what DJing was all about you know but i remember that there was like a guy they interviewed outside the rave um a, a logical progression event you know and and that type of drum and bass was called intelligent drum and bass you know which you know i i love good looking and book em. like that that is that's me all day long but I, I I never really like the name intelligent drum and bass because it's suggesting that there is stupid drum and bass, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 you know, I have a, a a a lot of love for kind of jump up drum and bass, you know. And and people are sometimes kind of shocked by that, but for me, it you know, I love Bookham, but then I also loved the jump up side of it as well. And Nicky Black Market is, is is one of my favorite DJs, you know. And uh, I just remember in in this documentary, there was a guy who was like um it, it, talking to the camera you know i guess he was off his head but you know he he was like <laughs> you know this isn't like stupid jungle this is intelligent drum and bass you know and i just ah oh, man you, you know like it it's not about like whether something to me it's not about how clever something is it's just the vibe of it you know and there can be really boring so called intelligent drum and bass tunes and then there can be like really kind of exciting tracks that that are you know you they they might think of as as stupid uh, you know you know um, and you know but but like sometimes just the most simple track you know where it's just the drums and bass and like that's it that can be enough you know if it's just got this vibe to it you know and especially when it's played on a sound system you know I I like that thing of like mixing high and low art you know and and I I like the you know i i love classical music and then i love really dumb pop music if you you know if you want to think of it as dumb even though like i think it's much harder to make a, an, an actually popular piece of pop music as opposed to making you know perhaps more underground type music you, you know like of, of course to do anything well is hard you, you know and and or it's it's not something that everyone can do but i i think trying to like make value judgments that like oh pop music is is stupid and easy it's like well it's not really really to do anything well takes skill and talent and and you know all that stuff so i've i've never tried to i never wanted to be like a purist in that regard you know um to me it's just you judge each each thing on on its own merits and, w- and what it was trying to achieve. You know, it, it's like if you're not trying to make a club track, well, then if it doesn't bang, then it, that that doesn't matter. You, you know, and and likewise, you know, if if you're just making a very repetitive club track, well, yeah, okay, it's not going to get to the top of the charts, but you weren't trying to. Hmm
0: yeah you, you've you really shown like loads of your drum and, b- drum and bass remixes of pop tracks have been um, yeah really sort of elevated tracks or maybe brought new audiences to to pop tracks that maybe wouldn't have I think for me personally I think when I heard your bootleg remix of Hello by Adele oh yeah I suddenly loved the original like, after <laughs> nice. that track I was like I now love the original because of that it's like ah, um, oh, cool yeah, amazing. I mean, you you do have like you've done a lot of a lot load of remixes over the years, and a lot of um, bootlegs as well as official ones. I guess there's a million questions that could come off the back of that. But talking about pop music and talking about with drum and bass and about what people appear to think is right or wrong, like how did your how did the Adele remix that you did come about and and
1: yeah, what was that like? Well, the 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 Hello remix was just a bootleg, you know, and um, so the the original one I I did for her was Hometown Glory, which I think was 2009, and uh, I mean that was one of her first singles, so like she wasn't the you know the, the 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 massive massive star that you know we we know today um but you know she, she definitely was doing well and had had a lot of buzz but you know literally that that remix offer just kind of came in um and uh i think I'd, i i had already kind of established myself as, as a remixer for you know pop tracks at, at, at that point um had a few big remixes already but that one in particular that that kind of really took me to another level and put me on a, a, a lot of labels radar um because i think it, it it kind of happened as she was rising as well and, and and i think it it just kind of it it really kind of connected at the right moment and um you know it, it, the, the original track was just her and the piano so that is kind of limiting where that gets played somewhat you know you know so so my remix was getting kind of a lot of plays on um you know more obviously dance music type programs and uh you know just put put it in a different area um and yeah after that remix you know uh, um a lot of work kind of came in and 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 uh, it feels like it's still kind of paid off today, you know. Like people, are like, <laughs> can you do an Adele type remix? You know, but I, I, I think, w- w- crucially, what people at labels, you know, don't always get, they're like, oh, you know, can you can you do like a hometown glory type remix? And I was like, well, if you give me a hometown glory type <laughs> song, then I can. But like, you know, I'm just reacting to whatever. The song is, you know, so I I can only do so much, you know, um, and yeah, I'm and not gonna people, sing it for you.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know,
1: sometimes people are like, oh, this has got a different kind of vibe to, to to your Adele remix. I'm like, well, yeah, it's a different song, you know, but then w- w- when it came to doing the Hello remix. You know, by that point, uh, she was such a um, star that uh, I don't think they were actually bothering getting remixes done anymore because they didn't really... Yeah, you know, usually you get a remix to kind of like reach a new audience and and give the track and, you know, extra bit of life. But, um, I mean, when you're that famous, you, you, you don't really need a remix, so... Um, yeah, she's
0: already carpet bombing the whole of the music industry. Yeah, yeah,
1: so... Um, <laughs> There was they, they kind of announced that track was going to drop like a week before or something. And, and, and I think like a lot of people were like, OK, you know, get ready. You know, let's load up Ableton. Uh, you know, we're going to wait for that track to drop. And then, you know, th- there was an avalanche of bootlegs. You know, a lot of people um, tried to do it. So I knew that I had to kind of get on it and get it get it done that weekend. I think it dropped on the Friday. And so I, I think I had it ready by the m- Monday or Tuesday. And um, then uh, sent it to Annie Mac, and she played it like that 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 week, you know, on the radio. So it was it was it was a good fast turnaround. But like we we did get in touch with her label, and they were like, "Look, we're 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 not um we're not commissioning remixes anymore for her because there's, there's just no point." But but they kind of gave the blessing. We're like, "Yeah, yeah, you know, if you want to like send it to radio or have Amazing. it exist on YouTube or something, they 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 were fine with that."
0: That's superb, man. I guess um, yeah, we're gonna go. We're probably gonna do a bit of a, a memento style interview here, where we now switch back to go. Early okay. Days yeah. Again. <laughs> but yeah, oh, just start. Of-
1: yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> I've got like polaroids all around my room. Um, so yeah, what were you using to uh, once once you would when you were using your keyboard and your piano and stuff? Where did you go on from there to start developing your own track?
1: i think that i think the, the the first time I had any kind of dabbling with d a w you know music production um i mean it wasn't a door it was it was a tracker you know um so i think um it would have been around ninety four and I had an amiga computer and you know used to get magazines and there would be like a a disc on the cover and um they, they i remember this one issue they'd put the the tracker software for people who don't know like a tracker program is like a an early um kind of daw you know you 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 could make tunes on there and and some big jungle tunes uh, i didn't know at the time but you know like super tunes sharp by Af- shooter yes yeah, super sharp shooter and uh aphrodite was using it and uh yeah, a lot of people were using trackers and even using the Amiga and, and you know, just, uh, I've I read some crazy things where like people had like two Amigas wired up together and, and like trying to sync it. I mean, I mean and, like using that to trigger a, a hardware sampler and um, yeah, it, it, you know, people were, were making big records with Amigas and, and, and it was like 12 bit, you know, like so very lo-fi uh, sound quality. But um, yeah, I just remember I I had this tracker program and uh, there was just like a bunch of demo tracks that that had been included with it. And one of them was like an Amen Jungle remix of that track. um, I want to be a hippie, you know, Uh, I want to be a hippie and I want to get stoned (laughs) on marijuana, (laughs) you know, which which is obviously like... uh, a highly amusing tune um, <laughs> to teenagers. Um, and, and this has been like when I was 13 or so. And yeah, that was probably the first time I ever heard the amen was, was on, on this uh, demo tracker remix of, I want to be a hippie, you know? And, and <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I just, I had no understanding of raves or DJing or anything like that. So like, I just thought it was really weird, but I, I kind of liked it and I tried messing around with the tracker, but it was just a bit too complicated. And, and, uh, I just carried on playing video games, you know, and uh, so I, I, I kind of forgot about it. And then a couple of years later, then when I was 16 and now had a PC, again, had another uh, magazine. And uh, I guess it's kind of nerdy, uh, but uh, there was a, I think, a CD now on the cover, not a floppy disk, but like a CD on the cover. And uh, they had a demo of Cubase. Oh, yeah. and it said Is it, it said, music? maybe I, I can't quite remember but um i just remember it saying on the cover with this demo of cubase you too could make your own jungle tune and even though i i barely had any idea of what jungle was the, it, it was just something kind of clicked i was like oh cool I, I i'm gonna have a go at this and literally had just gotten you know dial up internet so <laughs> i started downloading drum loops you know break beats and uh you know had the amen and uh the think break and and uh yeah just started putting them into this demo of cubase now the thing with the demo of this cubic of cubase it only had two audio tracks so you you could have like i think 16 midi channels but like i had no midi equipment you know i, I didn't have a a midi keyboard at that time or a- anything so really all i was playing with was two audio tracks wow, uh, the, the, right. the, so so the other thing was that, hilariously that uh although i was listening to jungle at this point my uh stereo was so bad there was no <laughs> sub bass and you know in the tunes back then it was like all the bass lines were just like sub basically so I was completely oblivious to the bass.
0: That's so in jungle
1: and drum and bass. You know, I was just really, he- I was just hearing the drum beats and the vocals and 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 the, you know the strings or whatever. So um, when I started making drum and bass, <laughs> there was no bass really. You know, I was just literally having the drum loops playing, and then um, I'd kind of picked up that you know people were sampling funk and soul usually by way of hip-hop records you know like the way zinc was was sampling from um you know american hip-hop records and there, there was a lot of kind of like bootlegs of hip-hop and r&b around 96 97 of course ready or not so i i i had kind of like you know i i, I was a bit into hip-hop so i i knew about dj premiere and and how he sampled soul and so i I just went and got my mum's Motown CD box set, and just kind of went through this like, I don't know, eight disc, you know, box set, looking for for loops, and that that was a real kind of education on 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 you know what makes a good loop, yeah, you, you know, and uh, yeah, went through, sampled a bunch of stuff, any little bit of vocal that was clean as well, I was taking, and so then I I was just basically had you know the the drum loops and these. Motown samples, and y- y- you know, like if I wanted a vocal to play, I had to like cut out one of those elements because I only had two. Tracks. <laughs> yeah, you gotta lose the, <laughs> you know, lose the beat uh, for a minute. So, yeah, you know, that, that, that was the, the start of it, really. And, and then, um, eventually i got you know the, the the proper version of cubase and i was like oh now i've got eight audio tracks you know and uh, then they started to get the the plugins coming through and and you know because for the first year or so i'd never even touched an eq or a compressor you know it was just literally trying to mix and match sound And it was still a couple of years before I had like a MIDI keyboard. Like uh, uh, a lot of the um early tracks I made, like things on my first album, True Colors, that was made without um a MIDI keyboard with you know with without any um you know synths or anything. The way I was doing it was like I had one a one shot sample of like a bass or a synth that I had downloaded. From some random website, and then I would open that in a free audio program, GoldWave. Oh yeah, fuck! I remember
0: GoldWave. GoldWave was great,
1: you know. And, And 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 what I would do was just like literally like pitch that one note up two semitones, and then like three semitones, and then like five semitones, and save those audio files. Then bring those into Cubase and arrange them. To try and make a melody uh, out of them, you know. So like, I, I, it just seems so weird now. But yeah, not having a keyboard, it, I, 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 that was the only way I could do it. And uh, yeah, I was also doing things like I didn't have a filter plug-in, so the way i was filtering my loops was like i would open a, a loop in GoldWave, this audio editor and i would just copy paste it so i had like eight or 16 of them and then there was like a filter effect within gold wave and i would just set it to go you know from like a high pass to a low pass or something you know and then save that and then bring that into cubase and it was like you know, I couldn't mess with it. Then that would, that was it. It was recorded like that. You know, I still swear that there was like a particular sound to that. And, and the, the, the way those things filtered, they sounded so great on like disco loops and things like that. Like on on, on my early records, it, it just had this very particular sound that I've never heard replicated on it and anything since so I've been trying to like <laughs> get that sound for years. And it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's always the way that like this free, <laughs> this free program, you know, that, um with shareware or something you know so yeah i I think like with enough time passing anything can be made kind of like nostalgic and uh you know takes on a a particular rose tinted patina you know like uh i'm sure that in in time to come people will be trying to replicate the sound of uh you know, uh, 128 kilobyte MP3s, you know, that they used to hear on LimeWire or like, you know, the early version of Ableton that was like low quality. I think people will be like, you know, trying to get that that crunch back, you you know, there'll probably be a plugin at some point that emulates, you know, early Ableton algorithms.
0: Um, Oh, definitely that. Yeah, (laughs) I think they're on like version 20. So that could be a huge.
1: Yeah, I I think there actually is a plugin that replicates lossy MP3s.
0: Is there? That's cool. There is a plugin which replicates the. I'm going to forget what this classic sampler is now. Maybe it's the S100. Um, there's like a like a, a a VST that replicates just the filter. Right. Of, oh, it's not the S100. One of the old one of the old samplers with the filters. yeah. I, I've yeah, got I've
1: got the the S950 plugin. That's the one. Yeah.
0: S950. Yeah, yeah. 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 French French company, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. There are loads of different sampling. Um, yeah, sampling sort of uh, crushing and and like replication engines aren't there now. Yeah,
1: I mean the you know the the, the funny the funny thing is that you know like uh, I think I was maybe one of the first people in drum and bass to go completely in the box. You know, like I like I just started working with audio in Cubase. I never touched MIDI for the first couple of years, and and you know my early records were like maybe i was using this thing called sound fonts um which yeah. r- which was basically you explain
0: what a sound font is because it,
1: it, it was basically like i i you know i i was buzzing when i i got a hold of it because it basically let me turn an audio file into midi you know so so i didn't have to do this thing where i was like pitching them up manually in an audio editor and and re-importing them you know so it was almost like a, a, an early virtual sampler in a way, you know. So, so I had created my own sound font libraries of my bass sounds and synth sounds and things like that. Of course, now you just drop an audio file into a sampler in Ableton or, or whatever, you know, or Contact, whatever you're using. But um, that, that, yeah. was, that was kind of like the, the early, a, a weird kind of precursor to that. But I, you know, I never used any hardware I I was all in the box and uh I you know at, at the time I came through in uh, you know around 2000 that 2001 that that was um, you know, had been kind of unheard of. You know, the, the the standard thing was that you, you know, probably had Cubase hooked up to, on an Atari ST and it was all MIDI and you were using a hardware sampler like the Akai or the Emu and you had um, the Mackie mixing desk that everyone swore by in drum and bass, you know. And th- this, this meant you had to have, like, a decent amount of studio gear, you know. Like, th- this was thousands of pounds worth of gear, you know. Whereas I was using... A cracked version of cubase as a as a teenager you know um i bought it once i'd made money from releasing some records you know um nice but... know you
0: bought it now at this point that you do <laughs> yeah, yeah. It now. i just bought it last <laughs> week no, no. Uh,
1: but no um so yeah you know i i didn't have any of this uh studio equipment and um i was just in the box and that that is just what i knew you know and uh After a couple of years, someone I knew actually gave me an Akai sampler, you know, Uh, a guy who'd been producing drum and bass, and he was like, oh, I'm not really doing it anymore, so, you know, have this sampler. I was like, oh, great. And I I just, I never even really got it going, you know. I I think I might have tried turning it on once, and I just couldn't figure out how to make it talk with the my cubase and the, I i didn't have a mixing there so i i didn't i didn't even know what the hell i was doing so i kind of just was like oh that's not for me and and so i i just stuck for years just being in the box you know and that just kind of worked for me you know and and uh i remember speaking with and not trying to uh, you know name drop but you know the underworld guys and um just because they they were such um hardware guys you know they kind of couldn't when we started working together they couldn't believe that i was just in the box you know and and that i hadn't tapped into any of the world of of hardware analog gear you know um and, and they said that they you know everyone else they'd ever known in in the music biz and and you know in dance music you know when they got their first paycheck through from you know releasing a record or having some kind of success you know the first thing they did was was go out and buy gear for the studio you know like like he said that that's just what everyone did and he was like you're the only person we've ever met who never did that you know (laughs) Uh, and what did you
0: buy what did you buy i probably
1: just bought dvds you know um like i i i don't know man i'm i'm i um yeah i i don't really know i i i think uh I did buy the Proteus 2000 so- sound module, kind of, kind of early on, because um, it had a great Rhodes keyboard sound on it. Yeah, you know, and the and organs I, I are great on that. Yeah, and I, and I, I I loved the the sound of the Rhodes, and or, you know I I couldn't afford a real Rhodes at that point, so I was like. You know, I'll get this sound module and i I, I got I did get a MIDI keyboard that I, I could hook up to it, but I couldn't get the computer to to work with the MIDI. For some, you know, it was meant to work, but like I I just wasn't clever enough to to get it working. Uh, And so I was having to play everything live, you know, and and record that in then as audio, which kind of suited me because I never liked working with MIDI. I I just wanted audio. But, you know, it it just meant that I was like, I'd play a bass line on the Proteus and then I would have to chop it up as audio to get it in time, you know. I always made things very kind of complicated for myself um, by not being more tech savvy um but it you know the, the 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 really weird thing was that i just had made a career from sampling and had never used the sampler you know mm. and then it, i i basically had that realization i three or four years ago when i was like hang on this is this is kind of nuts that i've never used a, a hardware sampler and i'm loving the sound of all these old hip-hop records there's like and jungle records like why don't I actually get a sampler? and a, and a friend of mine lent me a, a, a hardware sampler the Roland SP 303 and um, you know that that was like a a great kind of Eureka moment where I was like yes this is giving me the vibes that, that I've been trying to get you know and, and I think just after years of only being in the box it was like it was great to have that refresh of suddenly working with hardware you know and and then of course in my obsessive nature you know, I've ended up buying about 10 samplers now, you know, and, um, you know, mainly trying to get them dirt cheap on eBay because, you know, I, I also kind of think that like people think like money is like the this way of kind of solving problems that oh, if I only got this bit of equipment, then I, I would be sorted and then the tunes would be great. But, you know, the fact the fact is. You know, any bit of equipment is, is, is only ever going to add maybe 5% to what to what you're already doing. And probably, you know, if you're any good, you're already doing great stuff, just making it on a laptop on some, you know, bad speakers and, and you know, just a crappy setup you've got, you know, it, it's like, Definitely. I know I've, I've made some of my best tunes perched on a kitchen table working on headphones on a slow laptop you, you know um and and w- at the times when you've been in like a, a massive studio with loads of equipment and uh, you know do you make something great yeah i'm not so sure
0: yeah exactly it's amazing that you've done that man and i know that you talked about um you talked about all all you really need is like a laptop and a good pair of monitors like to make yeah. music
1: yeah, yeah. and I, I, and the thing is it's not even that they need to be good monitors. They they need to be monitors that you just know how things should sound on, you know? And and I think by listening to like tracks that you know sound great, um, you know, by other people, reference tracks, by by listening to them on your monitors and, and, and kind of developing your ear to, to to be able to pick up on on what things should sound like, um, or what good things sound like on your particular setup in your room on, on your monitors um that that that's that's the key really and you know it's that old kind of cliche of the you know the limitations being important for creativity you know and and yeah
0: i was going to ask you do you think you could use two tracks in cubase now do you think you could make a track like that
1: um i mean uh it would be an interesting challenge um Maybe that's going too far <laughs> but but <laughs> but you know I think the principle is right you know and and especially in this era of you know potentially limitless capability of of you know digital workstations you know like uh, you could have an essentially infinite amount of tracks in in Ableton or Cubase and you know as many plugins as as you wanted running per tracks that that you're Uh, CPU will permit I feel like yeah you almost have to kind of impose some limitations on yourself because um, it's almost too much freedom too much power and um, I think creativity needs something to kind of rut up against you know and uh, it's um, although artists always I I think the inclination is always that I want total freedom i want to be able to make what i want to make you know I, I actually think putting limitations on artists is good you know whether that is in terms of equipment or it is in terms of you know working within a, within a genre you know um it's like drum and bass is quite regimented and you know you could technically make anything you want but i I think there is that thing of like you want djs to play your records you want people to be able to dance to the records generally you know not everyone is, is necessarily making that but for most people i think that is kind of how they want the music kind of received and so that is forcing you into a particular box there now that can be restrictive but i think within that you know the the, the, the true artist can can find ways of being interesting within that, you know, and yeah, you know, I always relate things to films and just think of like, you know, Hitchcock worked almost exclusively within the genre of the suspense film, you know, and he had themes he often returned to. There was, there was similar things happening in a lot of his films, but I also think his films were all wildly different as well and he found ways to be original and inventive, within the confines of this suspense thriller genre.
0: Absolutely. I, I think the film Rope is a good example of yes. and, and like Dial M for Murder. Those those films that are like enclosed in one space. Yeah. And they're able to make it so yeah. tense. And and, and, and so I mean the, like,
1: like that that is like Hitchcock was seeking out stories that were so limited. You know, he loved that, that like it all took place in one location, you know? Um, because he was like, if it works within that, then it's gonna be great, you know? Um and you know, then the way he kind of like Took that to another level, as with Rope, you know, it was that he came up with the idea of like trying to make the whole movie in one continuous shot, you know, which um, hadn't really been done before. And um, although the limitations of the equipment at that time meant that you could only shoot in uh, 20 minute reels. So they actually had to cheat it every 20 minutes in the movie where like someone walks in front of the camera and that's where they had to cut and change the ah, reel right. so the movie isn't all in one shot but they did try and shoot it as such and and that was you know the the kind of self-imposed limitation of, of making that you know not only was it one location it was all men be in being one shot you know and um, yeah, yeah I you think know, that
0: was the first 3D film, wasn't it? Dialogue for Murder. He, like, I think he shot it with two cameras and there's a lot of like foreground stuff yeah. happening that's yeah, there yeah. for the, the, yeah. the depth of field. Yeah,
1: it, I mean, I, it was one of the first 3D. I'm not sure if it was the first ever 3D. Maybe, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but certainly one of the first. And yeah, there's some great things in that movie as well. There's like uh, a giant, they, they needed like a close-up of the... The phone being dialed but because of the the 3d cameras were, were were so huge or there was something with the focal lens that they couldn't actually get a close-up on a real telephone that would be in focus and so he had a giant telephone made that was like the size of a person and then had to like get a giant hands made that was dialing the the rotary phone dial you know and uh you know so in the movie when it goes to the close-up with this telephone you're seeing this giant fake finger dialing you know which yeah sort uh, of
0: like thunderbird style like yeah 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 but
1: but you know i i I love the the kind of uh the facade uh that you know the the way when you're watching hitchcock films they're like you know he never really tried to go for uh you know realism um he he was never scared of like you know rear projection you know not just in like car scenes but like even in just dialogue scenes you know like there they would be like the background painted and and just like very fake back backgrounds but you know i i like that kind of thing i like foregrounding that the movie's not r- real you know be, uh, and and i kind of distrust more like films that try and go for like a, a documentary type realism or kitchen sink realism because to me you know it, 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 it you, you're, you're trying to like make out that it's real when we all know it's not you, you know and to me it's it's disingenuous whereas if you're just uh actually foregrounding that how fake it all is then to me that is being realer you know because because you, you, you're not trying to trick me in that regard um i i, I kind of respect that more
0: Definitely. There's a great sort of... Um, there's a great documentary of... Or, or it probably comes with the um, the film Rear Window, where it, like, divides up the scenes and how it's all made. And, yeah, it's amazing the the sort of vast scenes that they had. And they also had to use really bright... Uh, not Well, they needed really bright lights, which were unbelievably hot as yeah. well, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so many more considerations to pe- setting a film than what you're Oh, wow. Today. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, the yeah the 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 kind of uh, the high key lighting that they had to use back then and and just the the, the size of the cameras the size of the rec- sound recording equipment it's it's just nuts you, you know like how a- anything ever got made i guess that's why you had to have <laughs> the kind of industrialized studio system because um it was just so complex and and uh, cumbersome um, you know, whereas today, you know, shooting on a tiny DSLR or a, a drone and things and things like that. I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty wild, you know, and you, and you, you I kind of wonder, you know, like what, what, what people like Hitchcock and, and Orson Welles, you know, what they would be making today, you know, and I, I think you get a kind of taste of that with, uh, Scorsese, you know, because, um, he kind of really embraces the latest tech and and and, you know and things like the wolf of wall street i think a lot of people don't realize that so much of that movie is like CGI enhanced and uh, you know, in the way that like Hitchcock was shooting against fake backgrounds a lot, you know, a lot of that movie is is against fake backgrounds and you know, like the yacht that appears in that film in the wide shots, you know, that's a CGI yacht or green screened in and and there's a lot of like fake buildings and fake backgrounds and things like that. You know, and I, I kind of really like how Scorsese is this, i'm not sure how old he is now in his 80s probably you know and 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 he's like using cutting-edge technology um in his movies i think that's pretty cool
0: yeah there's such a huge parallel between like music making and filmmaking like if you think back to early filmmaking was like hugely complicated you need massive amounts of budget um i guess early days of making music um yeah if you if you had like uh what was that the fair light if you needed a fair light (laughs) to sample stuff with it's 30 grand or something like that yeah
1: yeah yeah i mean i I guess that is kind of what we've seen over the last um i suppose it's happened over the last 30 years where um filmmaking and music making were traditionally done you know in a studio or by a studio um and and that has become a lot more accessible to a lot more people it's the 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 tech has got cheaper and more compact and more minimal and um a real democratization you know people can people can make hit records in their bedroom now and do and and they they have, have been able to for a number of years now but um you know that that's quite radical from from where pop music was you know in the 60s 70s into the 80s you know and and the same with films that you know i guess one of the earliest examples i i I can think of is is, was really like the blair witch project of a film being shot you know not on film and and being a very cheap independent production and and becoming this you know global smash hit movie and and you know and now there's um a lot of films, you know, that are made for very cheap and uh, you know simple independent productions, they're they're going out on Netflix and reaching millions and millions of people. Um, so, yeah, I th- I think that is one of the you know the 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 plus sides of, of kind of technology and as, as things are, are, have progressed over the years. You know, the downside is that uh, with things being more accessible, it means that there's less quality control, you know, and so trying to find a good film on Netflix can be hard than trying to find a, you know, a good song on Spotify maybe. uh,
0: Yeah, right. It's trickier. I
1: I was just going to say that there's so much material. It's it's not even necessarily whether, you know, they're objectively good, but just the things that you think are good, you know, trying to find what you like um, is maybe trickier because it's just like this flood of, you know, inverted commas content everywhere you know and and trying to navigate that you know without really much guidance you know it, it, it's like the curation is really being done by the algorithms you know uh mm. and you know that was one of the the cool things about traditional radio you know that you there would be people like John Peel or you know then like Annie Mac that you know if if you felt your tastes aligned with them then then you would kind of follow them and and uh you know listen out for things that they were recommending um and it used to be that you go into a video shop and maybe you'd have a, a connection with a the person there or they would know your taste and 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 they would be able to recommend the films for you you know and uh it, it, yeah it,
0: with record shops as well exactly yeah
1: Yeah, that you know, when I worked in a record shop, uh, you know, if there was, if if I heard something come in on a promo that, uh, I thought was, you know, there was a particular customer that that would connect with that, you know, I'd keep it back for them, you know, and, uh, I think that that has become trickier with just the, yeah, there being too much stuff out there, you know, and, and how you navigate through it. And, you know, I find it, yeah, weird how, you meet someone and you know they seem really clued up say about music you know very very knowledgeable and then you mention like a particular act and and they've never heard of them you know and and you're like oh wow you know and and it's just like yeah that is totally possible that you know there are spheres of music you have no idea are going on you know
0: Sometimes I like I'm backing up all my stuff, and I'm like, what if I just lost all the photos I've ever taken? And then I just sort of think I'd probably be alright. I'd probably yeah still be. But alive. I, I think
1: <laughs> I think like DJ Fresh said at one point that like every five years he deletes everything, you know, like from his sound library, you know. And I don't know if that's true, but like yeah, that that would be an impressive kind of thing to do, you know, to 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 be like no you know we uh, i'm not going to be tied to the past i'm i'm going to keep things fresh you know um that is good it reminds me of the guy who sold all of his possessions
0: like i i get really excited by these ideas and then i start to go on oh, no, i i could never do that yeah, i love yeah. the idea of it
1: for me i i kind of like having like uh, every sound i've ever sampled there to hand you know and and there's there's like like on the on the the, the latest record I made notes for the underground that, that had sounds on there that I sampled in the late nineties. Um, you know, some of the first things I ever sampled and, you know, if I had used them back then, it wouldn't have been as interesting because they were kind of of that moment. They were like jungly type sounds and, you know, I was still figuring out how to make stuff. So it nothing came out. But then by the time I was uh, like started releasing records in the early 2000s and then into the mid-2000s, it was like, well, that wasn't really the right moment for them because Jungle was seen as kind of passe at that point. And so it didn't kind of make sense to... to You had to wait longer for things to come back around in a cycle. So now here we are like 20 years later. And I'm like, actually, all these Jungle sounds I'd sample from the late 90s, um, this is this is their moment, actually, you know. So so I was able to kind of draw on 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 those early sounds and really have those kind of authentic kind of l- little samples, um, and, and that 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 was quite satisfying to me.
0: Yeah, I can completely understand that. Um, I noted down just like there was there was like time stretching in there and uh, jungle. There was like some stabs, orchestral stabs, and piano stabs, and yeah. well, like yeah. It, it sounds great, man. I really, really enjoyed listening to that last oh, album. You. Yeah, and I love the sort of aesthetic of it—the the sort of eight bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I was drawing man, on. you know, I, I guess I was trying to think that, like, um, yeah, you know, I, I always felt like oh, if only I'd been born five years earlier, then I could have actually been part of the the initial kind of jungle movement in in the mid '90s. You know, and. Um, I'd always kind of thought like, oh, if only I could have made a record back then. And so, th- so th- this was like kind of me imagining like what if I had made an album in 95 or something, you know. And and so that that is why using those samples, it, it seemed to fit. Um, but I also didn't want to be, I didn't want it to be like a complete throwback relic. You know, I, I, I tried to strike a balance where it was definitely of that era but also felt like it could work today you know and and it, it's it's a tricky one to 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 try and get right i think but hopefully i did where it, it feels old and kind of current as well like I, I i didn't want it to feel kind of too dusty or too tied to the past i tried to give it an energy of today you know i don't know it's hard to articulate but um
0: you definitely did that man yeah no i think i think you articulated that very well yeah i think um yeah there are a lot of core jungle elements in there that you can sense and feel but yeah there is definitely like a freshness to it um i guess a lot of the jungle records were like really moody and um i don't know sparse like super sparse yeah they? yeah and um, um yeah i think you ha- you still do have that space in there you have that mm you you have like um yeah you brought the two worlds together nicely cool thank you yeah man um i guess let's talk about cardiff because um yeah there's plenty to talk about there i mean there's i've got so many notes here it's absolutely ridiculous and oh, we're wow. not going to cover you. any of this really but yeah cardiff so um yeah when did did you is that where you started djing were you djing in cardiff
1: yeah i did i i i, f- I think the first dj gig i ever did was in newport actually and it was at a uh, under 18s r&b night and uh yeah i came on and started playing uh drum and bass and um i was also mcing at the same time you know i i i guess the the kind of youthful naivety or or something but, you know i, I just so <laughs> yeah I, you know i will dj and i'll mc and i you know i got all tangled with the microphone and the headphones and uh, they actually had to kind of pull me off after uh, like half an hour because uh the kids were going too crazy in the club you know so they had to uh, oh wow they too to, hyped. yeah i had to take it down uh to smooth r&b vibes again you know so <laughs> yeah i first started playing in newport um, but yeah primarily in cardiff um because that's where i don't live in cardiff it's just i was just outside and so um yeah often going off to the kind of big city to to go and play and um yeah that's where i kind of cut my teeth as a dj and really learned how how to dj i mean you know like most people you start off djing in your bedroom and i just had a pair of beat up secondhand uh sound lab decks you know which were um what were they like not even they they they, they like weren't like the Technics you know I don't think they were belt driven or something so so it, it, it just wasn't the same quite your feel and, and you know when you touch the, the the deck it, it reacted a lot more than the Technics so I think learning on like um, a cheap not so good pair of decks it, it puts you in um, good practice then for when you do get to play on Technics you know you know I started playing at, at weirdly like kind of you know R&B hip hop nights um you, you know that that was kind of good as well because you know i was playing to crowds if you can call it a crowd you know maybe it was sometimes only a couple of people but you know people who, who maybe weren't there for drum and bass so like you had to kind of win people over and and i i just feel like i learned a lot doing that and and i think um you know i started off obviously learning the basics in um as a bedroom dj but very early on i was able to Get these sets um in clubs and so i'd seen like other people i know who who just stayed as kind of bedroom djs for too long and and were kind of couldn't find that way into a club maybe but like also got too used to it and and uh couldn't seem to kind of make that progression or or, or migration to 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 actually being a club dj and being with crowds whereas i i i'm really grateful that i managed to get into clubs so early on and so that i stopped playing on the decks at home really and and i was out every week managing to play somewhere and and so I, i i was just hardwired as a club dj you know and and i think that put me in a really good position then for when um, I started to release records and started to get gigs around the world because I was already, you know, well suited to the club environment. And, you you know, you'd, you'd hear a lot of um, times when artists would come through and they would get gigs off the back of releasing records, but they hadn't really DJed out before. And so they, you know, they weren't very good. They weren't confident. And, and, you know, the, it, it didn't really work uh, them being a DJ, you know, uh, whereas for for me being a DJ and a producer kind of went hand in hand from the beginning. And, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful I was kind of in that position.
0: Mm it uh, just came to mind then uh, about about uh, that sort of style of person i think azido de base who had that huge track mm-hmm. remixed in yeah. the 90s uh, i spoke to his manager a few episodes ago now right and uh, he said about that he said his tune got really big but actually wasn't really much of a live performer And I think he had to go on like top of the pops and it was just like this really uncomfortable experience (laughs) for a guy who just loved being in the studio. But yeah, Cardiff, I can see how that uh, put you in such a great stead, you know, to be out there in front of audiences, Uh, especially in Cardiff, because it's such a great city. I've got so many fond memories of living there and being there. And... I know there is like such a huge dedicated following of drum and bass in Mm. Cardiff as well as other genres, as well as, you know, I was in actual normal bands when I lived in Cardiff as well. So there's like all kinds of amazing, amazing stuff going on there. Um, yeah, you were part of a night called Arperture.
1: The first like kind of residency I had was at a night that me and a, a couple of friends put on and, um, that was called Neuropol and, um, you, you know, the, the, the kind of, the, the, the main promoter of that uh, event was, uh, Dave Droneboy, uh, who, who, who now runs the concrete jungle is brand. And, um, you know, he kind of went on to then, uh, start aperture and, uh, that was like the, the, the big drone base night in Cardiff for many years. Uh, but is that drone
0: boy laundry? Yes.
1: Yeah. Which is now, ne- I
0: know, I know his stickers, like his artwork's amazing. Oh yeah.
1: He's an incredible talented guy. And, and you know, he's been my best friend since, um, mid teens. Uh, and, uh, you know he was like the only other person i knew really who liked drum and bass you know um i i, I was more into it than him but but like he <laughs> he would he would come with me to nights and we'd kind of you know go off on a mission to see nicky black market in bristol and things you know um and you know initially he kind of started djing as well or you know just figuring out you know at that point in your late teens when you're figuring out what you want to do and what you you know what scenes you're into and um so we started kind of promoting this this little night in cardiff Neuropol, and and uh it built up a really good following it was it was a really fun night uh, under under a bar and um it was it became like a kind of the the pre thing to go to before going to like one of the proper clubs and and seeing headliners you know um and uh yeah he, he he was like doing the design of the flyers and and um you know, he kind of like lent more into the design side of things, and and obviously been had had a lot of success doing that, as well as then promoting. And uh, yeah, he he's one of the the real kind of figureheads of of the Cardiff drone bass scene. You know, he he's been um the glue holding uh, holding things together. I think for for a number of years. And uh, yeah, well, yeah.
0: Because I mean, wasn't Tom. Rockwell Tom Green Tom Rockwell wasn't he yeah. in Cardiff too
1: Yeah 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 um you know I I remember when uh <laughs> Tom Rockwell came into catapult records where I was working you know and when he was just I think into um like metal the hardcore stuff like that uh, at that time and and you know when he first showed any some interesting drone and base and wanted to buy a, a drone base record you know so it's it's been very cool to see you know how he has turned into you know an incredible artist in his own right and and really got his own sound going on and a uh, very unique and talented guy you know so yeah it, it, it's it's great when you kind of see people um achieve things like that
0: yeah i i, I remember there was a guy called lung as well who uh, mm. had a, a really big track called afterlife yeah. Um which was just one of the best just uh, the, one of the most incredible electronic pieces of music I've ever heard, I think. Oh,
1: wow. Wow. No, yeah, he he's a really nice guy and yeah, very talented. I think he's he's kind of backed off from music as far as I know now, but yeah, he he he, he should he should come back. Yeah.
0: Oh, I wanted to ask you about um, Shotgun Mouthwash and working on the Terminator, no, not Terminator 2, <laughs> Train Spotting 2 soundtrack. Yeah, what was the, what, how how did all that stuff come about? The video, the the film, the music. Uh, yeah, like the y-
1: you know, with that track, um, it's obviously, you know, quite a weird thing for me to make. You know, it it's like this kind of, I don't know, half wrapped glam rock distortion song i yeah v- very odd but i think that was like the result of growing up listening to rock and roll from my dad and and it and it just being there in my subconscious and and then eventually it kind of like burst forth you know and there was yeah just a, a period i was in where i started messing around with guitars for the first time like, I, I don't know how to play the guitar but i just got a cheap guitar and was just like trying to make some noises and uh I'd always kind of like wanted to, you know, be a rapper as well. You know, like I, I, I loved kind of, you know, the art of uh, writing poetry. You know, and 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 being inspired by so much hip hop. You know, uh, I'm I'm well aware that you know I'm I'm not best suited uh, to it but um i can't help but dabble from time to time even just for my own kind of amusement you know and and so uh having this kind of bit of an mc side to me you know um that that comes out very occasionally and and uh yeah just one night i just just in the studio got on this weird tip where i think the album i was making around that time with night gallery my idea was that like each track would be as if it was by a different artist um as if you're kind of you know the album is like an art gallery and 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 you're going walking through like seeing different artists work on the wall i was kind of thinking well what if each track was by a different artist that i liked you know and so there was like a kind of daft punky type house track on there and then there was you know um the, the, this kind of like uh crazy rock rapper guy you know and and uh I, I was a bit influenced by that band Suicide who uh, Diplo and MIA had sampled um, in the, in their track Born Free. That That's what kind of put me on to this, this kind of uh, so-called no-wave um, early, eight, I think oh, late 70s, early 80s New York uh, act called Suicide, w- w- which was just this like very repetitive, minimal, kind of distorted, proto-punk type thing. Also, then I heard a... a I, I, well i'd always liked this record my dad had made uh where he had written it for shaking stevens and, and uh but it was it was like um my dad had written the lyrics and it was just like this very repetitive almost like a loop of, of like a rock and roll music loop but the lyrics were just this like stream of consciousness of american pop culture you know and um I can't think of the 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 name of it um right now I'll, I'll uh see if i can find it um yeah yeah it is so the 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 track by shaky that my dad wrote was it was called holy moly and and it was just this um yeah kind of insane scream of consciousness the uh, listing of of american pop culture you know that my dad was kind of obsessed with but um just like mentioning all these different like superheroes and and, and just random things that that the uh my dad was into and uh that just really struck a chord i was i just thought that was so cool just having a uh, this like song that almost felt like I don't know proto rap as, as as well, where, 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 and and just it, it, it being this stream of consciousness. Consciousness. Well, anyway, I just got on one one night, and and the, this stream of consciousness came out, and and it's kind of like, uh, it, it, yeah, it makes me laugh because it, it it's like it's just very highlighting the difference between like me and my dad, you know, where like mine is like this kind of uh, even crazier, darker, distorted bastardization of, of this song holy moly you know and um like my references are all kind of like nihilistic uh you know the zodiac killer and 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 things like that but there's still the kind of the same type of humor and and pop culture references you know and so anyway i i, I just made this guy and i didn't know what the hell to do with it you, you know um i i played it to a few people and they were like yeah this is nuts this is this is really cool is that really a high contrast song though? Like, you know, uh, I, I, I didn't know how it could ever come out, you know? Um, and one of the people I sent it to was underworld because, you know, we, we were sending each other tracks back and forth at that time. And, and, um, you know, just sharing ideas and things we were working on. And, you know, I, I just sent it to him and he was, oh yeah, that, 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 that's, that's really cool. Um, and we talked about it for a bit and, and then, you know, time moved on i just forgot about it and what i what i didn't know is that they had given it to uh danny boyle because danny was you know cooking up train spotting Two at that time and um they were like there might be something here and and, and then i mean in hindsight now at look back you know and it's almost like the the track was written for the film because you know the first line is it's the beginning of the end so you might as well set fire to your friends and so i mean that is so fitting for renton's character in Train Spotting of like having these kind of friends he hates you know and and also then like where they are in their lives you know then they're, they're not kids anymore and and uh, you know he he was like had a i think like a heart attack or something at the start of the movie so it, it, it just seemed to fit so well you know but like No one told me it was going to be used in the film because they didn't want to kind of get my hopes up. And and so often the case is with movies, things can change at the last minute, you know, and, and you, you know, actors think they're, they're in a film and then like they get to the premiere and they've, they've been cut, cut out completely, you know, and songs can come and go at the last minute. So like, they didn't want to tell me until really, you know, they were almost at picture lock. And so yeah it, it was like a couple of years after I'd, I'd made the track that they were like you know this this is the opening song in 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 train spotting too and you know train spotting was a film that that was one of the first times i ever saw like a club scene in a movie you know like there's a there's a scene late in train spotting where they where it marks go into, um like a it's not really a rave but like some kind of like acid house event and uh, i I think it was like late maybe late 80s and um yeah that was one of the first kind of depictions i had of kind of rave culture you know and 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 born slippy was such a huge tune for me as a teenager it was one of the first dance music tunes you know that, that i really connected with so um and just Trainspotting as a film was such a cool film as a teenager big influence on me um obviously not the heroin part but just uh, you, you know the, 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 <laughs> it was it was a buzzy film you know it was kind of like Pulp Fiction and um so to be involved in any way in in, in Trainspotting 2 was just a, you know such a a gas for me and to have like you know literally the first voice you hear in it is my voice you know it's so bizarre nice. um so um I was. Uh, That's yeah, you know, I, I I was just absolutely made up that they they wanted to use that song, but they they were also like, you know, the original version of of Shotgun Mouthwash was just this very raw stream of consciousness, and they were like, it would be great if there was a bit more of a verse chorus structure to it. You know, do you think you can like develop the song in any way because it's it's just like so repetitive at the moment. It'd be great to if there was just some gear shifts in it to that would just work so well with with you know changes in the images you know now that 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 is like quite a tall order to kind of go back in on a song you know like 18 months later and 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 try and like add something to it that like feels as good as the initial energy you had and 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 to try and you know i i I really struggle with that normally of like yeah i do as well going back in on something and really like doing something drastic like adding a a chorus you know but maybe it was like the pressure of it or the the time limit or something and and i i came out with this chorus that i really liked and thankfully that they really liked and i i think just took the song to to another level and and uh you know we we were very careful to keep the original demos vibe, you know, not to well, we didn't want to polish it. We wanted the, the the kind of the rawness of it, but just to have that tonal shift where it does go into a, a, a chorus and, and that there is more of a structure to it than just a loop, you know? And um thankfully that worked and and uh yeah everyone was happy with it and and um because it got used in the movie then the record label were like Oh, this should be on your album you know so thankfully then it, it came out as a single you know and and uh if i mean if it hadn't been for train spotting Two I, I think that song probably still wouldn't have come out you know and uh <laughs> yeah I, that I, I, I i like that you know as something as weird as that has found a way to kind of come out you know because uh it's it's hard once you're established within a genre it is very hard to kind of break out of that you know and and even like within the genre of drum and bass it's like people have a very kind of set idea of what a high contrast song is that when i kind of deviate from that it's not always so well received you know but i i can't help but deviate from it because when i know what people are expecting from me that makes me less excited to do it you know and and i i also just have to kind of like try some other things and even if they're not that successful you know i i feel i just have to do that try and make like darker songs or something um so that i can come back to like my core sound with with new energy you know um Mm.
0: it relates i mean um I mean it's an amazing song. You also got the the shit kicked out of you during the video as well. <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I mean the the music video um was an idea I'd, I'd had for a number of years. Um kind of based on like an anxiety dream of like when I was in um like in my mid to early uh, to late teens I w- I, w- I was in uh, like a hardcore punk band and I was the rapper singer in that you know uh that was my first foray into into music really and uh
0: very brave of you to admit that (laughs)
1: yeah yeah um not not my finest moment but um (laughs) you know like that's probably the most nerve-wracking situation i've been in you know when like age like 16 17 you know waiting to go on um and then you know the other metal band is playing you know before you and like just waiting to go on in these like dingy little venues um and sometimes like, i've always i felt like it was worse when there was like only like 10 people in the audience you know and and like there wasn't even a stage you were just like standing in front of them with the mic i mean that that was just so nerve and. um <sighs> yeah kind of like haunted me you know um some experiences with with that and and so then i i kind of like tapped into that for the for the music video where i i I wanted to have this uh kind of anxiety dream scenario where you're like performing in a band and, and the audience are really hostile and start attacking you and it, it just keeps escalating um and until like you're torn apart by um <laughs> uh, the mob you know and uh, um i i kind of had to be in that video and and, and so um knew I couldn't really di- direct it as much as i wanted to so i, I kind of like wrote the the treatment for it and then we found this great director called favorite color black and uh, i mean he did such a great job directing that and uh, and just really pulled together you know a proper film crew for it you know it, it it felt like making a little movie you know and he actually um hired the lens like one of the lens that the original star wars was shot on you know which uh i, I thought was very cool in it for all uh, my fellow nerds um but um you know using those old lenses it, it just gives it um, a great character and um yeah yeah i mean he, he he really kind of pulled it together and did, did a great job there so um I, I was happy to kind of uh defer the directing duties to him and uh as much as i don't feel comfortable being on, on camera you, you know I, I i did enjoy that shoot and uh just how um nutty that video was able to be you know um freak freak some people out <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a brilliant video. I I totally remember it coming out as well um, because I just interviewed the girl who's the bassist in your video, Cheryl Panera. Oh, really cool. So I I just interviewed her like about a week or so before that video came out. And then it was just so mad to see her next to you and just be like, wow, this is craziness (laughs) going on. Um, But yeah, she's an amazing bass player, uh, an amazing person.
1: Yeah, I mean... um if if you know, I, I I would love to have used her in uh, my actual live band, uh, but um, there's just uh, not really a need for um, live bass in, in the kind of drum and bass that I do. It's like, uh, you know, we, we we have like live drums, live guitar, live singing. You know, I'm playing the synths, but for drum and bass, I I just need that sub bass to hit so much that. Um, you you have got to kind of rely on on the the, the computer to, to to deal with the sub bass you know um it's uh it's like un- unless you you you're willing to kind of um like london electricity did it with with his live band where they didn't have any playback it was all live the drums were you you know so i've got a live drummer but she is she's got an acoustic kit but then she's also got an electric kit so like on it'll be the acoustic kit for the kind of breakdowns but then when the tune drops she's going over to the electronic kit where she's trigger triggering the samples from my productions or, or you know Amazing. so it's the drums from my productions so it's the actual sounds of the of the records there you know it's it's the snare from the basement track or from racing green you know and for me that was just really important to be able to have that and um couldn't quite figure out a way of a, a live bassist working in in that in that scenario you know and and uh um but whereas like london electricity he just had live drums all the way there there was no uh electronic triggering and um you know had the the bass played live and you know obviously when you go that route sonically it's going to be quieter than things with you know electronic production to it you, you know mm. um and and you just have to kind of accept that embrace that and and that is what you're doing and that and that's cool but for me i'm i i want the record if we're doing it live i want it to hit like it does on the on the records you know um to me the record is the definitive thing and so the the, the live has to try and uh, match that, you know. Other, other people uh, have, have different opinions on this, you know, and, and they're like, the live performance of a song, that is the, whatever that is at that time, that is the definitive version and the studio version is just a moment in time kind of thing. But for me, I don't know, being a perfectionist or something, I, I, I just the record is the definitive thing. And, and so I, I didn't do a live show for many years until it, the, the tech got to the point where I was like, okay, we can actually do it live where it sounds pretty damn close to the record.
0: Yeah. That must've been an amazing step to, to, to take those tracks out of, pull them out of Cubase and sort of see how they're going to work. Yeah. On a live setup.
1: Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I, I mean, just so grateful that I was able to find the, the great, Band members that I did, you know, it, it, it just uh, it just really worked out where we all clicked on a personal level and, and just being able to work together and just having a, 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 a great thing going on on the stage. You know, it, it's like you really feel like you are in a proper band, you know, and, and uh, just seeing like how audiences react to hearing these tracks live you know uh, hearing the vocals on remind me or something that you know played live it's it's just so uh you can see it's so emotional for people and and, um you know after after years of only playing tracks as a dj in in the in that kind of club or 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 festival environment uh to to switch gear and and be in a band you know because often i feel kind of uh I don't know, a bit, a bit awkward when I'm like on a massive stage at a festival and like it's just me there DJing. I'm just playing some tracks, you know. I I sometimes sometimes feel like it's just a, a weird imbalance, you know, like there should be more people up here, you know. <laughs> yeah, so like there ha-
0: like 10,000 there in one. Y- <laughs> yeah, yeah, so
1: like having a band in that environment makes a lot more sense to me and 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 it's good to be able to do that. Yeah.
0: I I totally get that feeling and also the feeling of not putting you know, not wanting to be in front of cameras and stuff like that, and being con- self conscious. Like, I totally get that. Yeah, yeah. So it's quite. Uh, not, you know, nice to hear like someone of yourself. You know, the stature and the the. Um...
1: Yeah, I, I kind of struggle in the in the the kind of age of social media. You know, it's like, I don't I don't want to put myself out there really. You know, and and I, I think it it kind of pays, in in having some mystique. I think, um, but y- you know you you it's a tough one i think certainly for new artists they have no choice like you 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 really do kind of have to put yourself out there uh with your you know personal brand or however you want to word it you know um but yeah it's something i'll i'll forever struggle with
0: yeah man well i've never sort of noticed that about you or anything but um okay yeah it makes sense makes sense to me cool man well just um finally is there any sort of um like philosophy that you go by um profound or not that you sort of that you live your life by
1: i don't yeah i don't know like i've i guess just like the idea of contrast has always appealed to me and um i suppose the thing of nothing actually means anything without its its opposite you know it's like it's very hard to kind of describe something or talk about anything without invoking it's it's opposite you know and and um you know obvious things like you know life and death and day and night but i i also think that that kind of gets at um that that if if nothing has kind of meaning without its opposite like then then you, you're kind of bouncing back and forth between these poles and uh that that kind of dance between those extremes that you can never actually get to the heart of of the one thing is 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 kind of getting at that. you know there 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 is no definitive like meaning at, at the heart of things you, you know what i mean like you 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 can try and like get down to the core the core of something but it's not there you know and i almost feel like it, it, that is paralleled somewhat in quantum physics of you know from from a distance reality seems like it like it makes sense that it's tangible that you know a chair is a chair, but you know when you burrow down to the quantum level um when when you go to look at like the, the the essence of the thing the the when you go to look at it it, it it's not there you know and and that everything is kind of there and not there at the same time uh as far as my understanding of, of quantum physics is and and i i feel that that is kind of like a a deeper truth of uh just the, everything in 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 life and the universe that um for at a distance, things can make sense, but like the closer you get, the less sense they'll they'll make, and 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 maybe there's there's nothing actually there at all, you know. And whether that is a chair or whether it is your identity as as and, and you know what what you are as a human being, uh, I th- I think a lot of it is is smoke and mirrors, and um the the that what we think of as life and reality is is really this this kind of uh, construction um this ongoing construction and that uh, you know there's um there's nothing behind the curtain <laughs> amazing man make, make that of was... that what you will uh, that's just <laughs> that <was> uh, <laughs> a random nihilistic <laughs> thought for you but...
0: no that's superb man i th- i really totally get that and also just in terms of like just diversity in things you know allowing both ends of each spectrum to exist and coexist and not saying that one's right and wrong um mm. yeah it's a really good one man that's great
1: cheers <laughs> <laughs> i can't
0: follow up with any like yeah yeah i'm not crit. sure where we
1: go from here but uh, yeah. <laughs> no
0: it's very deep man well thank you i oh, thank you very much for speaking to me today man it's been an my pleasure. pleasure
1: no problem mate thank you
0: Wow, what an absolute pleasure it was to speak to uh, uh, one of the biggest drum bass artists in the world. What an amazingly humble guy too. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't talk much about video games, which I would have loved to have done perhaps another time. Uh, But yeah, a really humble guy and someone who's incredibly talented. And um, you can see why he's been able to really Uh, reach for the stars in terms of his careers and in terms of being really amiable, down to earth and friendly Uh, absolutely amazing guy I've got huge respect and a huge amount of love for Lincoln on the show next time we have a loop artist who's American who won a national competition for uh, Boss Loop Pedals a few years back Um, She's an amazingly talented loop artist and we have a really nice chat about what it means to be a loop artist and how you can make music in that way in 2020. Thank you very much again for listening. Please support the
1: podcast if you can. I'm Midyera and I'll see you on soon.